Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry, with overpriced, underperforming products, and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. Hello and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, the podcast where every week we have on one of our favorite comedians to talk about one of their favorite things and we trace its history to find out exactly where it all went off the rails. I am joined as always by my co-host Andrew Nadeau. Andrew, how you doing buddy? I'm doing great. This was such a fun show as it always is. We had Eden Dranger on to talk about running, which she is apparently remarkably good at. Way, way better than either of us. Oh yeah. And that's not the hugest, you know, highest standard for me, but that still better than the 1904 Olympics is what we found out. And we're going to get into that in a bit. But no, she's a a fantastic writer and comedian. She's she's written for the new Beavis and Butthead coming out next year, the reboot, which is very exciting. So excited. It's very cool. I've I've loved her for years and was fantastic to get to talk to her today and cover. Yes, all of running a really deep history that goes back 2.6 million years and then uh, remarkable disasters. Andrew, I, I just want to take a moment to really commend you because when we ask for topics we're normally given just like a series of movies or or a, a particular historical event and we kind of trace it from there and and Eden said running and I was like oh no what are we going to do with that but I shouldn't have even had that thought because you were able to trace the entire history of goddamn running in this <laughs> podcast you are a vision you are a, a trailblazer I can <laughs> not wrap my head around how you said got it and were able to trace a narrative historically from the beginnings of human running to this event. It was so fun. Also, thank you very much. You know how much I love doing the work and research for this show because it's always worth it because this is so fun to do every week. Oh, it's <laughs> so a blast. This was fantastic. And uh, yeah, guys, we're going to go back 2.6 million years. We're going to talk some about evolution and biology, running standards, some advancements, as well as, again, the 1904 Olympics which was a disaster and would have been far, far better had Eden Dranger been running in it. But, you know, probably not for her health. And we're going to explore that, too. All right, let's get into it. Let's go. (laughs) 
Eden Dranger, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, uh, yeah, what have you been up to lately? We've been talking about some writing you've been doing and a show that's coming out next year, hopefully. Yeah, so I, I've i been writing on the Beavis and Butthead reboot that's supposed to come out on Comedy Central probably in April or springtime of 2022. There's going to be two seasons, 24 episodes. We have a movie special, too. It should be a, a lot of fun and hopefully introduce Beavis and Butthead to a generation that doesn't even know what MTV is. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, teach people what music videos are. It's going to be fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully. This is great for me because I grew up on it and I'm so excited that it's coming back and also that you agreed to do the show because, like I said, this is uh, this is big for me. This is really big for me. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, no, it was it was a, a dream. If you told little me that I would be writing on Beavis and Butthead when I was little, uh, I, I would probably tell you you're lying and, you know, don't 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 don't, don't like tempt me. Um, don't yeah. give me false narratives. But um, yeah, it was it was a great opportunity. I think people will really like it. We definitely tried to make it very classic Beavis and Butthead and not stray from the formula that worked, but also just introduce things that like are just common right now, you know, like, you know, phones, like what, what do Beavis and Butthead do with phones? What could they possibly do with phones where they can look at boobies and look at women's thingies whenever they want? Yeah. <laughs> can they even do that? Are they, are they even smart enough to work a smartphone? So yeah. Find out. <laughs> Giving those to the internet, it just sounds like the most uh, opportunity for chaos. And I love it. It is. The funny, the, the best part of working on the show though is also kind of, I mean, it was also, it was very hard because it just made me realize to write for the two dumbest people, you actually have to be really smart. Like, yes. right. <laughs> we had to always catch ourselves being like, wait, no, they're, they're, they can't figure that out. They're too stupid. Like we have to really like dumb it down even more. And it's fun because they're this, they're, they're already, everybody already, Already hates them you know they're already canceled so you know we can just we can go crazy with what they do because they're never going to be pc inappropriate so right because that's that's just their brand yeah no one's going to be like i feel betrayed by beavis and butthead yeah in, in yeah. their behavior dude you did not understand the brand if that's what <laughs> right if you're tuning in you bought the ticket now ride the ride right and i, I think it's a good point too about how you you have to write stupid smartly otherwise you know, people just disconnect. You've got to really be clever to figure out the, the way through this. Like when you see a stand up more often, that's just the really stupid character. The ones that do it well are so smart when you talk to them afterwards. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like Bo Burnham, you know, it's exactly. Very, yeah. Actually very <laughs> quiet when you talk to him and reserved, but uh, yet such a presence on stage. Yeah, absolutely. For the audience, our pre-show conversation was obviously about the the new Bo Burnham special. So we're, we're all in on that, too. And uh, seeing him live when that comes becomes an opportunity again. And in you also had a topic for today. What did you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I was a little confused as to what topic to choose because I'm so boring and I feel like I don't have hobbies. But <laughs> I do run most days of the week when I'm not injured or when I don't have, when I'm not short on time. I do run. So I've never really competed in marathons or, or 5Ks, although I think I want to now because I've been kind of a dork about it ever since quarantine happened and I had the time to like you know study all these like running hacks and stuff. 
stuff and geek out on like running shoes and all those things. But I have like, you know, I clock in pretty good mileage and I go pretty fast considering my my age and my uh, my gender and all that stuff, stuff. So it's also, it's nice to have something that's not like a creative thing that I can just zone out to sure, uh, sure. and always improve and work on and like practice. And, you know, so that's, you know, and it's not, it doesn't involve like writing or, or anything. Um, I think it's a good palate cleanser for the, for the brain. It's a good mental, it's a, it's a good mental exercise too. So yeah. That's something I've consistently been told I need to have and still don't. And I, I can feel the drain happening when all of my cleansing things are also creative. It's like, this isn't a release. This is the same thing I was doing for work. Yeah. People sometimes ask me like, oh, do you think about, cause I always tell people running, writing is really hard because like, even when you're not physically writing, you're thinking about it. Right. Sure. Actually, most of the work is the thinking about the clever thing you want to write. And then the actual writing, it takes very little time. Which by the way, for me, starting freelance work was so confusing trying to figure out how I'm supposed to clock my hours. Oh yeah. Yeah. I know. For like, okay, but I spent four days sitting there thinking about this. So do I get to count all that? Exactly. But, but it's like, it's hard because it's like the, it, the whole work, uh, healthy work-life balance thing right. is hard when that, when you, if that's what you do and you can't turn off that thinking about it mode. So for some reason, I cannot think about what I'm writing when I'm running, like, or even a, f- a funny idea or any, I don't come up with ideas when I'm running. I have just like visualizations of things and it, it, it really is like a mental meditation of sorts. That's fantastic. Are you one that listens to music, podcasts, or you just like... Yeah, I listen to music. It's absolutely either music. I do... um, God, I hate to be this person. Peloton has an amazing running program. I know they're known for the bike. I have the bike too, but they have great running classes that you can also just take if you're running outside. You you can just put put it on your phone and you can listen to it. And they have... Through music, they also coach you, which I like because sometimes I need to be pushed to like run faster or take it down a notch. I actually need it most of the time. I need the guidance for like what we call it, like, you know, make your hard days hard and your easy days easy. So like we, I should not, and a normal runner should not be running really hard, you know, five days a week or six days a week, even like they should be running like hard, maybe three days a week, maybe two. And then the rest just like easy mileage, just like, you know, conversational pace running, not like super fast interval, you know, work. And it's really hard for me to pull back. Cause like all of a sudden if a song I like comes on, I'm like, Oh, but I need to remember that's also how I got injured. So I need to remember to like keep it low and having someone yell at you in your ear is, is a good way to do right. it. Yeah, it's a good way to zone out and really reach the zone is somebody yelling in your ear. Yeah. Well, yelling at you to calm down, I think. Right. <laughs> that, that always gets me to calm down is having someone yell at me to do it. But I definitely music. I could not, uh, one time uh, I, I like the Wi-Fi in my whole area was shot and I, I, I wouldn't have access to anything. Spotify, health, nothing like was go- done. And I was like, I can't run to this. I can't run to this. Yeah. <laughs> Just the thoughts in my own head? No. <laughs> Just sticking with your own thoughts, running to your own thoughts. That's a that sounds like a nightmare. That sounds like a like something I would never do. Right. A little bit. I mean, I, I run with it with the music on usually, but uh, but with I don't know. I, I like having a, a case. The thing is uh, too with running that prevents injury is um, having a high cadence. So moving that your feet turnover. If you have a slow turnover of your foot, you can get 
get really bad knee pain. So I have to always remember to keep my turnover high. And what helps is like a, a good BPM, a, a beat per minute. So when you have like the mute, that's where the music comes in and it helps because as long as you're, you know, turning your foot every beat, then you're you're good and your cadence is up. So like, I'm just afraid I, I you know, I don't have a beat to run to. I don't know. It's like a metronome type thing. Right. Yeah, exactly. Without that, who knows what we're doing? Right. See, I won't really dork on you. by. Oh, no, no, please. This whole podcast is us being dorks about the things that we're very passionate about. Okay, good. Absolutely. That's what we're here for. <laughs> like we've done, we've done just the nerdiest shit. So running is actually, that's some jock behavior. This is actually my zone. Right. <laughs> but, but that's the thing now, like, and I kind of learned this through working on Beavis and Butthead because like we're writing about, they're still going to be teenagers, by the way. Uh, so it's not like they're, we're not making them, you know, 40 or whatever. So like, I just had to kind of do some research about what teenagers in high school is like these days. And like these days, like the dorks are cool and the jocks are the outcast. So it's probably the best joke in 21 Jump Street is that exact flip of that dynamic yeah. where like all the nerdy <laughs> people are just like everyone who cares about the environment are the cool kids and the jocks. Everyone's just like, who cares what you're fucking doing? It's unbelievably right. real. Yeah. So strange. I actually was not very athletic at all in high school. Like at all. I would do anything to uh, to avoid PE. I pretended to have my period before I even had my period. So <laughs> Way ahead of the game. And yeah. you know, when you say that, especially like in the 90s or whatever, like, oh, I have my period. Like, we're not okay. I'm not going to argue. <laughs> you can go wherever you want. Just please go away. Just don't bleed on me, okay? I don't want to deal with this. <laughs> yeah, even though like I had, I'm sure my female coaches knew what's up when I was like fifth week and I'm like, yep, my period still. I don't know. Get that checked out. You have a problem. We need to take you to a hospital. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's not your period. Maybe you're like of a severed wound or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you have internal bleeding. You need to go now. <laughs> so yeah, not very athletic in high school. Uh, a musical theater nerd for sure. Same. I definitely got more athletic as I got older. But yeah, in high school, it's like I just was not. We didn't even have like I went to a very small, small school and we didn't even have a football team. So it wasn't the whole school wasn't very athletic. Yeah, it was a school full of people who just are just like, who's going to shove us in a locker? No, no one. All the predators yeah. are gone. <laughs> yeah. Well, and when you took the opportunity of quarantine to also just get shredded, I know you've got <laughs> in ridiculous shape over all this time. I don't run though. That's the thing. I just, I could not get myself into running, which is my problem. And I hope this episode turns that around. I hope it can it really might. sell me. I don't, although the th from what I read and heard, it might not, but also from what I've personally learned uh, through quarantine, like I was always a runner even before quarantine, but like I got so much better after. Look, of habits you can pick up in quarantine, that's probably the best one you could have picked up is like running. Cause a lot of people did a lot, a lot more self-destructive things. I mean, I wish I could have been more, I wish I could have written like, you know, 17 scripts or whatever, but you know, I, I'm glad that like I shaved off like my per mile pace, you know, and all that stuff. What's your time now? Like a minute off. Oh, wow. I mean, that's a big chunk. Yeah. So there's different kind of paces and we have it like a marathon pace, like a marathon pace is something you can hold for like a marathon, right? So you can hold it for a very long time. There's a 5k pace, which you can hold for 5k. And then there's a 1k pace, which is very fast. So I, I improved all those 
those paces. So I'm happy. That's great. Yeah. Like my marathon pace now is like about 730, a minute, 30 seconds. Wait, you're, you're marathon. So you're playing on saying more than 20 miles of maintaining seven and a half minutes per mile. Yeah. I think that's how it works. Yeah. Holy shit. Okay. Really yeah. <laughs> yeah. I am fast. That, that sounds insanely fast for, for a marathon time. What is your, what's your kilometer time? But I've never done it. That's the thing. I'm not even sure exactly. I think like that as, as far as my training, that's what it's been, but I haven't, I haven't run for 26 miles for 24 okay. miles or whatever, 24 point whatever. But so I don't know for sure. Okay. I was about to say, get off this podcast now and go compete because that the is the most insane thing I've ever heard in my life. I don't know if I can. I probably can't honestly. Also, because I've only been training on either a treadmill or my neighborhood, which is not, you know, depending on marathon courses, some of them have hills, which really slow you down. Yeah. So I always try to, when I run on my treadmill, I, the thing that's interesting about training on a treadmill, and it's actually a lot of, a lot of elite athletes do it is that it's actually harder to run faster outside because if you naturally, if your body naturally wants to slow down, it will. But when you're on a treadmill, you just set your pace and you go. Oh, that's interesting. If you can't keep up, you're going to fall off. So like if you can resist just going lower on like tapping the lower pace on the treadmill, you can go for as long, you know, so that's, that's how I measured it really. Yeah. If you don't want to shoot off into the back walls, you have to like maintain that pace. Exactly. You have to keep up. So that's how, that's why a lot of people actually do train on treadmills. And I always put it at a bit of an incline too, just to simulate the outdoors. But like, that's the thing. Like when you have like hills, my friend just did a 5k and she did not do as great as she's hoped, but because like the last part, she didn't realize it was just like a huge hill, which completely can slow you down. And you, you know, essentially doing a walking pace uphill. <laughs> right. Still, even if it's untested for the full distance, that time would let you win the 1904 Olympics, oh, really? uh, which we're going to get to later today. Yes, you, you would have won the Olympics. So clearly killing it. Well, I think also we've just been so much better at like shoes. Like, Significantly. Like, yeah. I have a pair of shoes that I don't like to run in a lot because they're not very good for running, like not running. They're good for running, but they're my physical therapist hates them because she thinks they're bad for my gait and could lead to injury. So I don't wear them a lot, but when I'm in them, I go super fast. Like they're very springy and it's like, they didn't have those back then. Right. You know, we have all this technology now, you know, we have a sports drink that has like electrolytes that like, you know, I, I can stay hydrated and not collapse, you know, like back then all I had was water. Like even Gatorade is something that I think only came in the sixties or something with, you know, along with civil rights or whatever. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, basically, yeah. <laughs> in all the history books, they have uh, civil rights right next to, by the way, the University of Florida also created Gatorade at this time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> those were the big, the two big things of the decade. I mean, but you got to hand it to them, like, because all the best athletes were black and needed those civil rights. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it's not, you know, they realize like, oh, shit, white people suck at sports. Yeah. <laughs> we better give the rest of the, the rest of the country some rights so they can compete. Amazing how long that took. I know. Uh, to, to realize really. that there was a, a way... <laughs> 
so embarrassing. <laughs> to realize that how much money there is in sports and like, oh, yeah, we should we should do right by the nation because there's profit to be made here. I do want to expound upon that real quick, though, just because I just dropped it as a little nugget. But yes, in case anyone was curious why I said that Gatorade was developed for the Florida Gators football team at the University of Florida. And that is why it's called Gatorade. See, I know that because I saw a commercial for Gatorade where they mentioned that. Really? I've never seen that commercial because I thought it was wild when I found out like, oh, it's named after the fucking school that I hate. That's uh, why. Yeah, that's, yeah that, that for sure. But also I, when in the commercial, they had, I think, the coach who was very old at the time say like, yeah, I made the players drink, you know, the Florida Gators, you know, and that's what they called the Gatorade. It's ultimately not a particularly creative name. Now that you know the origin is like, oh, you just push those two things together. And to be quite honest, I hate Gatorade. I don't drink it. I drink other kinds of sports, nutrition drinks. I'm not sponsored by them, but I should. Yeah. <laughs> I like them a lot. I just put like, they come in tablets. You put them in water and dissolves and um, it doesn't have a lot of the weird coloring and stuff that Gatorade does. Gatorade also comes in like pretty weird flavors. Oh yeah. Gatorade's basically fruit punch now. Like very few times have I got gotten a Gatorade for like my actual physical activity. It's normally just like, I want something sweet to go with my food and it's this is healthier than soda. Yeah, but whenever I've gotten it for that, I've been disappointed. So Gatorade, I don't know what niche you're filling here. I feel like you're bad at all of the things you do. Uh, also recently, I, I did have to get one and I asked what flavors they had and they just used the colors. They said we have red, yellow and blue. And I was like, OK, I mean, I guess I'm supposed to know what blue means as a flavor, but I hadn't had Gatorade since I was a kid, so I had no idea. The thing with the colors, is, they're always named after something that has nothing to do with a clue of what the flavor, like the, the blue one is like Arctic Crush. And it's like, what the fuck does that taste like? <laughs> no, it's got like the same rules as men's deodorant, where it was just pick something, you know, vaguely cold and something that might make you angry or violent. Battle Shark. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta be honest, I want some Battle Shark Gatorade now. We're running very hot and cold on Gatorade in this episode. Why don't we get into the history of running now that we... <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry about this Gatorade segue. Oh, I, I started it. That's my fault. I just had to shit on the Florida Gators. It's <laughs> Every episode from now on is just about how much we dislike Gatorade. We're going to work that into every podcast. But yeah, we got we've got some good history here. Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry with overpriced, underperforming products and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands. So you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. So here was the first interesting thing 
when I tried researching this to begin with. If you look up the history of running and the invention of running, the first thing that pops up is running was invented in 1612 by Thomas Running when he tried to walk twice at the same time, which is my fucking joke. <laughs> I... <laughs> I, I wrote this like five years ago. I was brand new at this. It's not great. I wouldn't. This is not a joke I would have kept. And it is it's everywhere. It's the re- number one response on Quora. It's on the images. They keep changing the date for some reason. I don't know why they're doing that. The 1612, I agree, is not the funniest date, but this is not the biggest problem with the joke. Anyway, I couldn't research this topic because my own joke kept getting thrown back at me every time I tried to find some history. God, what a perfect metaphor. I, I don't even know what I feel like it's a this. This is obviously foreshadowing for a dystopian in future, but I don't know what it means. It was just consistently infuriating. And I apologize to the masses I have miseducated here who are also trying to research this and are just stuck at, you know what? Thomas Running, he's the guy that did it. Yeah. You were slightly wrong with the 1612 part thing, because when you sent me the notes, you started with 2.6 million years ago, Andrew. Yeah, I I, I did admittedly uh, go just far enough back this time. Perfect. 2.6 million. I feel like I nailed it. So <laughs> I, I do feel like I tricked my way into making this a biology episode and I feel almost bad for that but but not really because I, I think the mechanics of running are fascinating. So it's assumed that the ancestors of humankind developed the ability to run for long distances about 2.6 million years ago and this obviously played a role in the evolution of our hunting methods because this is around the same time we evolved to lose our fur and started eating meat. Uh, around 3 million years ago Earth's global cooling phase had a drying effect on East and Central Africa and declining regular rainfall turned wooded areas to savanna grassland and food like fruits, leaves and seeds became scarcer as did permanent sources of freshwater. So our ancestors had to abandon a foraging-based lifestyle for a much more active one. The appearance of stone tools and butchered animal bones show hominids having switched to add meat to their diet, again, about 2.6 million years ago. And the ape-like proportions of the Australopithecines, who spent some time in trees, then evolved into the long-legged bodies built for running. This part isn't in in the notes. This was just a that I found interesting. There, There is debate that running isn't a side effect of walking for humanity. This is not we walk and then we walk faster and it becomes running. That our bodies were indeed built for running due to the structure of our joints and ligaments that it was deemed more important for us to run than walk. That, in fact, walking could be the side effect of running. This is debated because there's also the impact that running has on our body long term and it's well if we're built for it the same way we're capable of swimming, but swimming long term we drown. Uh, So it's under heavy debate, but there is evidence behind this and I thought it was very interesting. So wait, you're saying that the human body was not made for leisurely walks? It is not the predominant goal of our bodies. It's something we can do, but the stroll by the beach is not what our ligaments were designed for as much as chasing after or running from the lions. So I just I just want to clarify, it's more impressive for me to walk than it is for someone else. Yes. To, OK, good. That's what in, I wanted in fact, to hear. Sitting down is the most impressive thing you can do. We were built to run every day. We're not doing it. We're defying evolution. There is a I don't know his name. I can Google it, but there's a great uh, professor who wrote a book about this, about the science of how we move and everything. And this is why when people complain that like, I don't want to run because I get knee, pain. I have bad knees. And it's like, no, actually it's good for your knees. You're just probably wearing the wrong shoe or your, your posture is wrong. Your biomechanics are wrong when you're running. Uh, we're meant to run. We're actually not meant to sit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of our problems come from too much sitting and us being too stiff from sitting. So I always, I kind of always knew this, but it also like personally from years of just like, 
like, you know, being like going, just having gym culture and like doing like, you know, all the, there's so many machines at the gym. And I used to like dabble in like the elliptical and all that stuff. And it all really felt, especially because I'm very small and short, it felt very unnatural to me. And the machines always felt too big. And I always felt the motions did not quite feel right, even though it's supposed to be good for you and low impact and good for your knees and everything. But it was only when I started running where I really saw and felt physical improvement because this is what we're meant to do. <laughs> right. No, it, it's it's very fascinating. And the mechanics of anatomy are absolutely fascinating. And I love that we're at a degree now of study uh, and especially with things like slow motion capture to be able to study and, and to be able to, to track movement using the same methods as CGI and where we're able to study precise movement of the human body to see what is most effective and what's superior. And the honing it of method has has led us to a lot of understanding of anatomy and biology. And it's it's very cool. And just science. as a side note about the elliptical, I don't think there's any, I think that's a very unnatural movement for anyone. It's almost like you're taking your own body and making it a marionette. Yeah. <laughs> you're not putting like any part of your body really in control of anything. Like your arms are kind of controlling your feet, which are also kind of controlling your arms at the same time. I don't like it. I'm not a fan. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I don't like, I mean, I can't believe I ever did it, honestly. Like, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> no, so far, everyone in this podcast hates Gatorade and the elliptical. And I, I feel like I'm I'm really behind us all. <laughs> this is the episode that's going to get people coming after us, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> Dropping hot takes. No, but I, I think it really is a hot take to even like running. Because, like, most people make fun of me. Because it's like, most people just don't like exercising. Which I, I just, look, I don't like exercising either. Even though it is exercise. If I could take a pill to give me the same effects that like the same high from running and the physical benefits, I would trust me. It's, it's, it eats up a lot of time. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, no, I don't run, but I, I am a, a gym monster and I completely agree. That's just like, I would love to have those hours back in my day in the mental clarity, but I need it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it, it just goes along with like, you got to brush your teeth, you know? Right. Yes. <laughs> running is also uh, something that I think takes a lot of practice and to get to the point where you're really good and you like it, it takes a, a lot of patience too. And I think a lot of people are very impatient to find out, but once they do, they feel great. Absolutely. That initial threshold of do it for a certain point and you get the point where it's harder not to run than to run just from the benefits you feel that to, to miss a day, something difficult. Obviously all of this is stuff I've read, not done. I often power walk just to keep it low impact to not put the stress on the body as much, uh, but to still keep moving and keep the aerobic activity up. And honestly, those, the power walk days are a lot harder than my running days because it would be I also power walk at paces where like it would just be easier to jog it it's fast and but I'm also working different muscles like when you are power when you're walking in general and power walking included it's kind of like you think of it like a car like a car can go at a certain speed and like a car can also be a Ferrari and go to much faster speed you know it's all about the gears really if you're walking you always have one foot on the surface, whatever the surface may be. When you're running, there's a few seconds where you don't have any foot on the surface and you're constantly, that's why a lot of the strength training that runners do that I try to do to maintain good, proper, because all runners should, I mean, I know a lot of runners are scared to do strength training because they're afraid that if they get too bulky, they won't run as fast, but that's not, that's such a myth. You should be strength training. A lot of the exercises that we do, we do it on one leg. So we do single leg deadlifts because running is essentially always being on one foot and balancing being on one foot. Whereas walking is the opposite. You have to keep one foot down and then, you know, uh, but running you're in the air, so. You're right, walking is unnatural. It's right. not what we're meant to do. 
So <laughs> we're going to keep driving this point home. Yes. Walking absolutely what we shouldn't be doing. So let, let's even jump back to the, around this 2.6 million year ago period. We've come down from the trees, but we obviously weren't as fast as the animals we were hunting. And the increased activity also came with an increased risk of overheating. So we evolved what became a significant advantage, which was our ability to sweat. I remember a bio professor saying this once. He said humans survived because they could sweat. And then just I was like, all right, cool. I guess I'm gonna spend the next week figuring this out because that's an insane statement to make if you have no background in it. So <laughs> we don't know when this occurred exactly as skin isn't preserved in the fossil record. But by 1.6 million years ago, Homer Agaster had evolved essentially modern body proportions uh, with joint details in the ankle, knee and hip showing they exerted themselves in ways which involved prolonged walking and running. So by 1.6 million BCE, naked skin and eccrine based sweating system must have been well underway to offset the greater heat loads of their way of life. Uh, and we were able to thermoregulate through this method. While some other mammals do sweat in most species, the dominant glands are the apocrine and the sebaceous, which produce an oilier product that coat their hairs. So it helps to cool, but is limited in its ability to dissipate heat. And as an animal's coat becomes wet and matted with the sweat, it's able to evaporate less effectively as evaporation takes place at the surface of the fur, not the surface of the skin, uh, impeding the transfer of heat. So I realize this sounds very technical, but this, this all ties into a lot of evolution that happened at the same time in some very fascinating ways because humans have the additional eccrine gland capable of producing up to 12 liters of thinner, watery sweat a day. These glands also don't cluster near hair follicles, just discharging through pores instead, allowing for better heat transfer. So this gave us the ability to get food by persistence hunting. We were slower than our prey, but we could walk, track, and run over long distances without overheating. Animals that we hunted would eventually need to stop, either from exhaustion or to avoid overheating themselves. This allowed us to get food in an increasingly harsh environment when our prey had significant physical advantages. It, it was it was just sweat and our loss of fur. Suddenly we could get rid of heat through water coming out of our bodies and animals would become matted down with it. It was this incredible confluence of events that led to us surviving. Andrew, I'm going to tell you that I'm a modern marvel because not only do I sweat a lot, but also I do have oily hair. So best of I both mean, worlds when, on this end, baby. <laughs> when is, is just denying all of our evolutionary rate. He's walking, he's sweating with oil. <laughs> It's as, uh, just uh, <laughs> incredible that he survived and somehow got in incredible shape, too. Andrew, you're really you're really pushing the incredible shape thing, which is great for a podcast because no one can prove you wrong. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm sticking with this because you mentioned the number of followers you got from Thirst Traps. And you know what? I'm not going to get those followers for us. When we're doing ripped episodes about getting in shape, we're going to put pictures up with these. That's fair. That's fair. Very true. Continue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so speaking of the social impact of Thirst Traps, us evolved. <laughs> these adaptations uh, to run also led to significant social changes. We're the only primate species without fur, and fur was used as a display. We still have the instinct that gives us goosebumps and raises our hair when we're threatened, but it doesn't actually intimidate. Uh, it also doesn't express emotion because it's not visible. So it's speculated that universal human traits like blushing and complex facial expressions, as well as posture, evolved to compensate for our inability to communicate through fur. We also developed body paint, cosmetics, tattoos, skin decorations, signifying various cultures cultures that convey group membership, status, and social information that was formerly encoded by fur. Plus, you know, posture, gestures, body language to broadcast emotion and intention. Evolutionary changes developed to help us survive running are in many ways responsible for the development of what we view as marks of humanity. Humanity would not exist in the form we know it today if we evolved to hunt by methods other than running. I'm blown away by that. Am I the only one? Is that just me? <laughs> no, no, Andrew, I'm, I'm, I'm absorbing what you're saying because first off, the goosebumps thing and like you your, your hair raising and standing on end being a thing of just like supposed to be a leftover from your trying to, you know, say I'm th 
threatened him. I'm bowing up on you and everything. That's blowing my fucking mind. And then you elaborated with everything else. And I still haven't fully processed (laughs) exactly how I feel about all. It really was fascinating to go through because you, you realize the impact it has, especially when you consider that running is its own culture as well. The activity itself is ingrained. And obviously that's a recent, more recent thing that we're going to talk about soon. But the fact that it became a subculture when it's responsible for our culture, if we were to have evolved to stay in trees instead, the obviously culture would be different for a lot of reasons. But the fact that our expression would be vastly different was was incredible to me. But you guys already know I nerd out on evolution and biology stuff. Huge fan. Yeah. (laughs) So let's jump way ahead here to running as kind of a form that, that we're more familiar with. Running is a sport developed out of religious festivals in various areas. One of the earliest records of running uh, in symbols dates to 3100 BCE in Egypt uh, in the Sed Festival, also known as Heb Sed. The Sed Festival was a huge occasion to celebrate the pharaoh's continued rule, and it usually started after 30 years of a pharaoh's reign and continued every three years until his death. There'd be offering to the gods and a recrowning ceremony, but there was also a course the pharaoh had to run himself, and it was constructed to represent the lands of Egypt. The pharaoh would run the first two laps dressed in the royal regalia of Upper Egypt and the last two wearing the clothing of Lower Egypt, and it was possible it was just ceremonial, something symbolizing the outrunning of old age. Others hypothesized it was more practical, and pharaohs that couldn't finish would be deemed unfit to rule, and, you know, maybe killed? We don't We don't really know. <laughs> I don't hate this system. <laughs> it's not the worst. I feel like, wait, is this where running for office comes from? <laughs> Good hypothesis. That would be amazing. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, based on three seconds of thought, it makes sense. So I'm going to roll with it. But I I don't hate the system of just like, hey, you have to do a little show for us, you know, every three years just to make sure that, you know, you're really fit for this office. I don't think a lot of people would have remained in office if we did make them run four laps every three years. No, you know what? I had to do it in elementary school to pass. So the least our president and senators can do is uh, run a couple laps dressed in uh, civilian regalia, which is I also want to bring back the phrase civilian regalia. (laughs) I just want to know what civilian regalia in today's terms would even mean. I feel like it's maybe jean shorts. I I don't I don't want to be tied to that, but (laughs) perfect. Yes. Full tuxedo for the first two laps. Yeah. And then jorts in like a a hockey jersey for the second two laps. Uh, The full Kevin Smith outfit for the second two laps is what I'm saying. This is this is, I think, obviously a better system of uh, election than we currently have. So we're going to work on that. This this podcast is making changes. Uh, (laughs) We also have records of competitive racing dating back to the Taltian Games between 632 BCE and 1171 uh, CE when they died out after the Norman invasion. Uh, Though some sources claim the games go back as far as 1829 BCE, but these were funereal games held in honor of a deceased person. Now, the first recorded Olympic Games, which people are more familiar with as a history of of running, took place in 776 BCE, featuring running as the competition, the only competition. (laughs) In fact, from its inception to 724 BCE, uh, the stadium race was the only competition held at the Olympics, and this was a distance typically of 160 to 190 meters, depending on the stadium. They hadn't come up with sports yet. It was the only sport of just like run. That was pretty much it. Yeah, just just go, guys. See what happens. Maybe maybe one of you will, will get there and we'll, we'll do something at the end. Have a pizza party kind of thing. That that was basically it. That that was the Olympics that, that Arthur found on. Just just run for a bit. Just one 160 meter race. Yeah. And then like, <laughs> go home. We're going to do this again in four years, everybody. Imagine like the eight weeks on NBC, but it's just the one race. And now the announcers just have to like stretch and just producers madly behind camera trying to get it to fill the time after this one 160 meter race. Just really pushing like the 160 meter race finished. And then you have to like plug Brooklyn Nine-Nine's last season 
for the rest of the ages. Right. <laughs> that, that's what we're looking for in the next Olympics. So <laughs> the, the origins of the game and marathon have a lot of myth associated, but the story goes with the addition of the marathon. The event was instituted to commemorate the run of the Greek soldier uh, Pheidippides after the Battle of Marathon in 490 BCE during the first Persian invasion of Greece. And people are probably vaguely familiar with this, at least. Pheidippides was in a homerodrome, just translated as day runner, courier, day long runner, among others. So he was sent to Sparta to request help when the Persians landed at Marathon uh, in Greece. He ran about 150 miles in two days and then ran back. Uh, he then ran about 25 miles, not the exact 26.2, uses the standard Marathon distance today, sometimes attributed to him, to the battlefield near Marathon and back to Athens to announce the Greek victory over Persia with the word Nikomen, we win. Though there are other phrases in translation used depending on the source, some it's more of a full sentence. But immediately after that, he collapses and dies, which is honestly the thing to do if you've just run like 350 miles in three days. That is insane. But also, I'm just going to interject here. You won. You don't have to run that fast on the way back. Yeah. <laughs> I I actually had the same thought as like, you know what? He can probably he can probably tell them when the army gets back and they're not all dead. We won three or four days ago. Just so you guys know, oh, yeah. you don't have to be so worked up. I took a nap because I felt safe. Right. <laughs> but well, well, there is myth uh, around this. The existence of the Hamerodromes and their success and stamina to this level is is pretty much fact. The, the running over 100 miles a day. These were some of the most elite soldiers. This was all they did. Uh, and they were considered as soldiers, but they obviously weren't there to fight. They were to run. And the physical abilities of them were absolutely incredible. So after this period, there's nothing. There is nothing about running for about 2,000 years. Running obviously still happened, but there was this period in ancient history where to excel in it was something to be honored. And then basically nothing until the 16th century where we get the first appearance of the word jogging. It's, it's worth noting that there are heavy running sports appearing in the medieval period. Uh, mob football, for example, which was often a game between entire towns was an early ball sport. Uh, I mean, they had some back in, in the uh, BCE era as well, but for this time, an emerging one, using an inflated pig's bladder with no limit on team sizes and essentially no rules beyond no killing, which did still occasionally happen. And the goal was to get the bladder to the end of the opposing team's town, which is often a church. The game could last all day with miles of running and players would often drop out before the end due to fatigue. So stamina was still required and expected, but running is a thing. When jogging came up, this was used to train swordsmen. It was an activity of the the upper class and this this was you know <laughs> just to me this this weird thing people have been running all this time now and they call it jogging and it's used as training and this but this is actually the start of running being used as a fitness tool and it did uh spark an increase in popularity as a feature for athletic training though it still won't be considered an accessible sport for centuries i still like the idea of mob football and just challenging different towns not dependent on size like i like that like size of teams is not a rule so like what if chicago just said hey gary in Indiana, we're calling you out. Yeah. <laughs> the whole fact of exercise kind of being a, a, a thing of privilege kind of started in like the 50s, along with, I think, just like diet culture and stuff. But running, at least, is actually one of the less privileged things you can do because it involves zero equipment if you have a road, you know? Right. Technically, one of the most accessible sports. It is. That's why I really, I like it too. I think it's because you, you could 
would be like a kid from like a bad neighborhood with no money, but you if you have shoes, you can still run. Like, right. you know, that's all you need is shoes. Cause you know, cycling, you need a bike. Like cycling to me actually feels a lot more privileged, you know, oh, yeah. even if you get like a basic bike, you still need a bike. You still need something. Most sports need a ball of some sort, you know, yeah, right. at, at the bare minimum. Yeah. Like you can't play basketball without a ball. Well, <laughs> and a, a quick tie back to the, the mob football says, which makes you like that. I, I found the name on this Calcio Storico. This is rugby meets mixed martial arts. It's a traditional sport of Florence, Italy. This dates back nearly 500 years and still happens today. It only happens once a year because it's so dangerous. Where you're born in Florence depends what team you're on. There are four teams, single round elimination. So you've got like three rounds and it's just all out. Again, basically the only rule is no killing. Uh, <laughs> there's there's no killing. And uh, I mean, they've got rules about like when you're on the ground to be able to, to get back up. But you can find tape on this and it is insanely violent. Uh, again, so much so that it's only a thing once a year, but it still happens. And and this is essentially mob football. It's a, an entire town versus itself here. It just depends on where you were born within that town. Like yeah. they have this town like divided into quadrants. If you were born in this hospital, guess what? You're on Team St. John's and you got to go against the other kids that were born in the different hospital once a year. That could be your brother. Your brother could have been born in a different <laughs> hospital and now you got to fight him MMA style once a year to win this game. Yeah, well, I mean, you're not required to play, but yes, that's exactly it. I, I like it better if you're required to play, but I still like this a lot. Yeah, no, guys, please go go look this up. In fact, there's a Netflix special that, that discusses it. This is We Are the Champions, right, on Netflix? It's <laughs> This is Home Game. It's, ah, it's I okay. think, the first episode in Home Game. So, yeah, no, where you're born de- determines what you play. There is no switching teams. There's no choosing. If you decide to play, it's for the area you lived. You can't move and then switch teams. <laughs> so, th- this is an, an insane sport. And yeah, it does tie back to mob football, which was the kind of thing that was taking over ball sports that evolved, obviously. Running just kind of phased out for quite a while until, as he'd mentioned, it came back in the 50s and 60s. This was going to use as training. There, there is this, you know, it, it appears in the first uh, Olympics uh, in 1896. There's some history there, but it's, it's uh, not quite needed. You guys can look it up if you want in Michelle Briel. But it starts uh, appearing in the Olympics. They, they start seeing marathons of first Boston in 1897. But there's actually an event that's officially called the running boom of the 1970s because growth in jogging began in the 60s with coaches and athletes like Arthur Lydiard uh, writing books and introducing it as a staple in fitness routine. And that grew in New Zealand where Bill Bowerman then took it to the U.S. and also had added the concept of it being an important exercise for those of advanced age. And Bowerman published his book, Jogging, and it started the launch of it as a hobby. And soon after, doctors were recommending it for its health benefits. Soon to follow was Frank Shorter winning the gold in the Olympics marathon in 1972, as he was the first American to do it since 1908. And after this, 25 million Americans took up running. Nike got involved and linked their brand to running. Jimmy Carter started doing it, and it began to be considered a mainstream activity. And to consider this, if you are anywhere near a main street and look outside your window, you see runners. That was not a thing 50 years ago. That was it. There are always runners outside my window, just not there 50 years ago. This is relatively very recent. That's so wild to me to think that it's just like, oh, look, Jimmy Carter's hopping on that fad running that everyone's talking about. Yeah, no, Jimmy Carter is is typically known to be our most basic bitch president. (laughs) 
fan. I like him. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, I'm a huge Carter fan. I think Carter is is probably the best person to be a president. Oh yeah, of our country. <laughs> absolutely agree. Nothing but a humble peanut farmer. That's who I want as president. We actually all do like Jimmy Carter. I just I just enjoy the line. <laughs> I remember people in the '90s went crazy when they saw Bill Clinton jogging with uh, New Balances. Right. That was no. I mean, this this is again. It is such a part of our history. Again, being born in the '80s and '90s, that it was just always there. And again, considering it goes back 2.6 million years and what we're built for, the idea that it only returned as a sport after being the only sport 50 years ago was incredible. Yeah. That's absolutely wild. So we had this whole 2.6 million long history of running. Uh, we had its resurgence, but name of the show, Andrew, where did it go wrong? The 1904 Olympic marathon. <laughs> this is from Yakety Sacks bullshit that you sent me, by the way, when you told it me is. about this. This was insane. And th- okay, <laughs> so you have to remember the Olympics at this time. They're, they're not televised. They're, they're a thing that happens if you're there. The Olympics have been going on for like eight years. It's not as huge a deal. In fact, in the first Olympics, the guy who won the gold in tennis was just like a last minute fill in. <laughs> he, he was, they just, they needed a guy and it was like, hey, you own a racket. How about you come try it out? So in 1904, St. Louis hosted the Olympic Games as part of the World's Fair. And this is hard to imagine because running is so standard now and so many products are designed to keep runners healthy. But the people organizing this had no idea what was needed for a race like this. This is so crazy to think about because running wasn't popular until 50 years later that they were just like, oh, they need a running track? What even is that? Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, the, the Olympics are actually a smaller event than the fair itself. There were some runners who had won the, or placed in the Boston Marathon or previous marathons. But no, they, they had no idea what was, was needed. And in fact, a common study at this time period was dehydration, thinking it might make you run faster. <laughs> <laughs> which we're, we're going to get to in a second because that obviously didn't go well. Now, you're our resident runner for this episode. Is that true? Do you run best when dehydrated? <laughs> Not dehydrated. I definitely do run better when I don't have a full stomach. Like I run, I wouldn't say fasted fasted, but mm, I guess I do run sort of fast. I usually run first thing in the morning. So I technically am in a fasted state, but I eat pretty late. Like I'm not one of those people who like, I don't eat after eight. Like I will have a midnight snack before bed. Like, definitely. So I have... It, usually by the time I'm running, I haven't eaten for maybe seven hours. But that being said, the night before, I was definitely fueled. If I'm doing a very long run, I will eat a little something. Not a lot. It's also not very good. Here's the thing. I don't drink while I run. But in general, I'm a very well hydrated person. So I don't worry about it too much. But I don't drink while I run. If I do, I take teeny little sips. Because if you have too much too much water squishing around in your stomach, it slows you down and you also don't feel great and you cram too right which is why they only do the little cups on marathon runs so that people don't like gorge them and no one really finishes them either they just do a little bit and they just toss it and it's, it's baby sips you know sure certainly controlling your fluid intake and, and your food is important this was more of a level of hey you know that thing humans need to survive what if we don't give them that yeah <laughs> <laughs> this, this was an odd strategy back here because the temperature was in the 90s. It was humid. This was a 24.85 mile course. 
course, which was called by one of the fair officials the most difficult a human being was ever asked to run. It was a winding road inches deep in dust, seven hills, and cracked stone over the roadway. Plus, nobody stopped traffic or trains or deliveries or trolleys or even pedestrians and dog walkers. There was no path. I mean, there was they told them where to run. They didn't tell anybody who existed in this city <laughs> that this was happening and what they should do to avoid it. All of us had to be, they had marathon runners in the Olympic dodging cars. In fact, one of the runners was chased a mile off course by a wild dog. That's incredible. <laughs> there was nothing in place here to stop it. So this was just insane. Uh, and I mean, Fred Lortz, his name is going to come up. He's an American competitor. He did all his training at night because by day he was a bricklayer. These were not athletes as we have them today, where it's like, you're, look, you're going to get sponsored. All you're going to do is practice the one thing you do. Ten Greek competitors had never run a marathon in their lives. And two of the men from the Suwana tribe of South Africa arrived at the starting line barefoot. You also had Felix Carvajal, who raised money to compete by running throughout Cuba as like exhibitions. But then when he arrived in New Orleans, he lost all his money in a dice game and had to hitchhike to St. Louis. He was five feet tall and came to race wearing a long sleeve white shirt, long dark pants, a beret and street shoes. And uh, you can find a picture of this. Of course, at this point, one of the competitors found a pair of scissors to, to cut the pants off at the knees, at least. Uh, <laughs> but this is the official running outfit of the Olympics. I would love to think that he ran the entire marathon in the beret. I, I hope so. Uh, but well, he, his name does come up more later. So in this 25 mile course, there were two spots where runners could get water, uh, a water tower at six miles and a well at 12. And James Sullivan, the chief organizer of the games, thought this would be a good opportunity to test the effects of purposeful dehydration. I mean, he's just using them as guinea pigs in the Olympics. <laughs> in the Olympics, he's just like, I want to test my scientific theory of what if I didn't give people water? Yeah. So they, they at least had doctors and coaches driving alongside the runners to help, except they were driving in cars made in 1904, kicking exhaust on <laughs> dirt roads covered in rocks into the air for the runners to, to run through. William Garcia was, was the first to go down and almost the first to die in a marathon. He collapsed on the side of the road uh, and was hospitalized with hemorrhaging because the dust he'd breathed in had coated his esophagus and ripped his stomach lining. Uh, they, they say an hour longer without help, he may, may have bled to death. Jesus! <laughs> I know! Uh, John Lord started vomiting and quit. Len Tao was one of the South African competitors. He was chased uh, a mile off course by wild dogs. Felix, the Cuban competitor, was actually making some good time despite stopping to chat with spectators, stopping a car to ask for some of their speeches. When they said no, he playfully ate them as he ran. <laughs> then he found an orchard and ate some apples, which were rotten. So now having stomach cramps, he decided to lay down and take a nap. Okay, Felix? <laughs> fucking rules. This guy um, landed in America, immediately lost all of his money in, for his horrible dice gambling habit. Said, fuck it, hitchhiked to St. Louis, was wearing pants in a beret and decided to just like make shorts and continue with the race, stole a bunch of food from several different sources and then just <laughs> napped in the middle of an Olympic event. He didn't even quit the race. He just took a nap and figured he'd get back in it when he was done. <laughs> to live with this confidence. I, I, I'm so so incredibly jealous. I know. <laughs> Sam Meller was in the lead but had to quit due to cramping. I mean, th this was this was hitting everybody. Cramps were about to take Lores out, but instead he just got in one of the accompanying cars and <laughs> waved to spectators and runners as he passed. Hicks was one of the American favorites. The Hicks is possibly my favorite, though Felix is 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 a strong contender because Hicks came into the care of a support crew at the 10 mile mark and he begged them for water, but they, they refused. Instead, they just sponged out his mouth because, of course, it's coated in dust. However, at, at seven miles 
miles from the finish line, they did at least give him a concoction of strychnine and egg whites. Ew. Yeah, egg whites you might recognize from breakfast and strychnine from fucking rat poison. Or the movie uh, Rocky, but... Yeah, it's... it's uh, Strychnine apparently in very small doses. <laughs> this is also the first instance of recorded drug use at the Olympics, but at this time it's legal. There, there's nothing they can do about it. So strychnine in small doses was used as a stimulant and then, you know, a little bit more and it's a poison. Hicks' team, of course, also carried a flask of brandy, but, uh, you know, decided not to use it. The strychnine was enough. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. The little bump of, of coke he did was right. enough to really be like, he's fine. He doesn't need also the brandy. Yeah, of, of course. I mean, you know, this is just science, guys. But keep that water away from him. It'll ruin his performance. Yeah. <laughs> so, meanwhile, Loris recovers from his cramps, got out from his 11-mile card ride, and started running. Uh, just <laughs> one of Hicks' you know, trainers yelled at him, and he didn't do anything about it. So Loris finished with a time of just under three hours because he was in a car for 11 miles. <laughs> By the way, that's a very unimpressive time to be in a car for half of it. <laughs> so the crowd started chanting an American one. Alice Roosevelt, the president's daughter, placed a wreath on his head and was just about to put the gold medal around his neck when someone called him an imposter and told what happened. And the crowd started booing and Lors claimed he was, wasn't going to accept and he just finished it like a bit. It was, you know, that classic bit where you, you, you almost accept a gold medal that you didn't earn. Look, look, we all have our favorite bits and his just happens to be cheating in an Olympic event and then being like, I wasn't really going to accept the medal, guys. Right. Come on. <laughs> it's me, Lors. You know me. Lors, the bricklayer. Lors, by the way, did win the Boston Marathon a couple years later. Uh, so I guess he could run. He, he, not one year later because he was banned from running to do this for one year. Well, there's a lot of advancement in cars in that time. <laughs> so that's a very good point. Hicks was in terrible shape when Lors is finishing. He's grown ashy and limp due to dehydration and again, strychnine. But when he heard Lors was disqualified, he perks up. So his trainers give him more strychnine and egg whites, but they at least let him wash it down with the brandy this time. They soaked him in water, though they wouldn't let him drink, though supposedly it did help. In the last two miles, Hicks began hallucinating, believing he, the, the finish was 20 miles away. Uh, with a mile left, he begged for something to eat. He was given more brandy, but refused tea. Uh, took two more egg whites. He walked up the first of the last two hills and jogged down. He could barely shuffle by the time he reached the stadium. His trainers carried him across the finish line, holding him in the air while his feet moved back and forth. <laughs> Like Wiley Coyote. That's how you teach a baby how to walk. That is, that is right. purely how infants learn to run, but okay. And he was declared the winner. That fucking counted. <laughs> It took four doctors an hour to get Hicks in good enough shape just to leave the grounds. He lost eight pounds in less than three and a half hours. Less than 50% of the 32 runners finished. And their times, by the way, Len Tao, who again was chased a mile off course by wild dogs, still finished ninth. <laughs> this is incredible. Where did the dogs finish? Like, were they in the race too? Were they like fifth? I don't, I mean, the dogs, they didn't have numbers, so it didn't count. I imagine they did well being dogs, but you had to register for that kind of thing back then. Oh. Not not the loose Olympics it is today, where if you're a dog and show up, it's it's not like an Airbud thing where really it's like Rubo it doesn't say. Yeah. <laughs> this was I would love it if this was Airbud's origin story. Imagine running a fucking marathon when all you're allowed to drink is eggs and poison. <laughs> I mean, this is incredible. I could not believe this was real. All of this happened at the same time, which was insane. Like any one of these things happening, and you'd be like, oh, this is probably a bad Olympics. All of this happened right at the same time. The people you're describing in the event 
events that happen sound like a Christopher Guest movie yes. about runners. <laughs> Honestly, oh God, that would be like do best in show, but with this, that would I would watch that. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's all I want. The dogs from Best in Show are these dogs, and and we're, we're they're going to have the Olympic feature now. Like Felix and and Hicks and and Lors, they're all perfect characters for a Christopher Guest film, and I want to see it now. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, after this finishes, I think when and I are going to write this movie because I don't believe it exists, and that just feels wrong. <laughs> this should be a story that is told by more people than, than us, or I guess by us again with more people watching, ideally. But that's it. That's where it went wrong. Running as a sport, we think is great. Huge history. Where it went wrong was the 1904 Olympics where they said, let's not give them water and have them run through dust and car exhaust when cars are brand new. It's not like, you know, you had anything to control that at the time. You basically were drinking the oil. They just powdered it a little bit. Uh, <laughs> so this was the 1904 Olympics at, at the World's Fair and absolutely where it went wrong for running. Okay. However, we do have another segment, which is in their defense, where we're going to have to defend the 1904 wreck of a marathon as best we possibly can. Guests always get first dibs if they so choose, if you can think of a good a good angle to defend this shit show. I mean, I feel like just plain ignorance, like, yeah. just did not know, like, there wasn't education, like, just the, the passing of information has gotten so much better over the years. Like, now if we don't know if we should do something, we can Google it. The other night, I was not sure if I could take a Pepto-Bismol with Tums. And the <laughs> you know, like, everything we're unsure about, we can find an answer to. And I think they just did not have answers to most things back then. So they were just like, whatever I think will work, let's just do trial and error. And uh, obviously it was a lot of error and less trial in that case. Like, I'm just going to blame the lack of internet and ignorance of being, like, probably uh, white and uh, old. Uh, I mean, old. Oh, like, yeah. You know. <laughs> Pretty much an easy explanation for a lot of history's woes is just like, they were white and old. Yeah. And cranky. And that, yeah. that has never gone well uh, for society as a whole. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that's it's true. Again, this was used as the study ground because they didn't know anything. So uh, it was the great time to test if humans need water, uh, <laughs> which turns out, yes. You should not be testing that out on a marathon <laughs> run. Yeah. The thing is, like these, uh, I was going to say all these competitors were runners. They weren't. Some of them were runners. You probably could have asked them to try this out before the Olympics. Like they might have been curious and wanted to find out, too. Uh, but instead, they were just denied water in some sort of Stanford prison experiment exercise <laughs> and abuse of power. <laughs> no, I, I fully agree. And I also love the idea of just like, so you have the idea of runner's high, right? But have you ever thought about a runner's high that's mixed with poison and egg whites where you're hallucinating sure. the, the final leg of your run? That That's what Hicks experienced. And that is just <laughs> incredible. Yeah, the only defense is just running apparently wasn't something anyone did and they were just doing their best. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was, but I think my defense for this is the Olympics were how they brought it back. This was a big thing. Greece had been trying to do this uh, since their independence in the 1820s. They'd been trying to bring the Olympics back and the marathon back, and it had to start out terrible <laughs> to get to a stage where it was reintroduced into society. And when you realize that this was the pinnacle of a human capability for such a long period, for a thousand years, and then just nothing for 2,000 years. Uh, I mean, the athletes were the most honored people in Greece for 
their ability to run. And then we just had nothing. If you're going to bring it back, sure, take some risks. I mean, I, I wish the people behind it were significantly less stupid and realize that you can't breathe dirt. I feel like that one you should know, even if you're, you know, not <laughs> studying running your entire life. They had the sponges, Andrew. What else yeah. do you want from them? <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, they, they obviously made some plans because they had to keep the sponges wet somehow and they didn't have water around. So, you know, who knows? They, they obviously thought that out quite a bit. If they drank water, they would have had mud in their mouths. Now I bet you feel <laughs> stupid, don't you, Andrew? God, that is a good point, too, is that at certain point, they're just going to be inhaling this mixture. And it's again, it coated his esophagus. This is this is horrifying. This is harder and harder to defend. As someone who is dumb and white, I'm doing my best to defend. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, it ultimately these terrible attempts are what allowed it to come back to, to the strength it is today by putting these poor people through this and running this horrific marathon that made them realize, you know what, we need to come up with a standard distance of 26.2 miles. We need to not have runners die if possible. Don't try too hard. So this disaster helped lead to uh, a formalized standard in marathons. And, and eventually, obviously, people picked it up to become uh, the sport and the activity that it is today, where it's again, look outside. I've got runners there right now. I bet you $10. I'm not getting up. That feels far, which does not bode well for me and making it as an athlete. Why run when you can get up, you know? Yeah. <laughs> You're doing the current modern miracle of sitting, which is impressive. It's not what your body was designed to do and you're fighting through it and doing it so we can record this podcast. You're not one of those Jimmy Carter runners out there, okay? <laughs> doing what their bodies were made to do. We've just spent an hour helping me justify my laziness. I love this podcast. Uh, <laughs> but that is going to be my in their defense was that, you know what, it got us to where we are today, despite being remarkably dumb, uh, which is, I feel like what what most of history is, as well as this podcast. So, you know what, looping it all together, tying it back. I feel fulfilled. Yeah. Well, I, I think that'll do it. That wraps up our history of running. Eden Dranger, thank you so much for coming on and being the most experienced runner in our group here by so much and marking a time that would have had you win this Olympic competition. That feels cool. Now I'm done running for the rest of my life. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't beat a guy that was drinking poison and hallucinating. That's the thing. I don't know how well I would do with poison and egg whites in my body. I might be a lot slower, so. I mean, he got a boost from it. It, it helped him. Uh, we're not, I feel like we should do this. We don't have lawyers behind us. We're not recommending you try this, audience. Please don't. But it did help this guy before almost killing him. <laughs> Eden, thank you so much for being here. We, it was so fun talking to you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Our pleasure, guys. Uh, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe. Give us five stars. It helps us out so much. We also have our Patreon down in the show notes. So you can subscribe there. It helps us keep this show going. We'll be back next week and we hope you'll join us. When? I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.